tonight. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is leadership expert Sally Helgeson, author of How Women Rise, Break the 12 Habits Holding You Back from Your Next Raise, Promotion, or Job. Sally Helgeson, author of The Female Advantage and The Web of Inclusion, which cited by the Wall Street Journal as one of the best books on leadership ever, is credited with bringing the language of inclusion into business. She specializes in helping women achieve their potential in the workplace, delivering leadership programs to companies which include Microsoft, IBM, the World Bank, and Pfizer. A contributing editor to Strategy Business Magazine, she partnered with Marshall Goldsmith, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, to create an invaluable handbook for women trying to take the next step in their careers, whether that's climbing the corporate ladder or striking out on their own as entrepreneurs. Welcome to the show, Sally. Nice to have you on today. Thank you, Catherine. It's wonderful to be here. Well, it's very interesting. I guess your partner or your co-partner in, in uh, authoring this book did his own research and I guess found out that the, he had certain insights about behaviors that hold people back so that they can't succeed in their careers. But he also found that there's a difference between men and women, which is where you come in. Uh, so in other words, men and women face different challenges as they seek to advance their careers, as you say, whether in corporate uh, entrepreneurship or whatever their careers happen to be. So what are some of those struggles? What I mean, this is what you talk about, in, in obviously, in your book, in the handbook, or what you write about. Uh, what are the differences between men and women? What are the yeah, struggles? You, yeah. The, you know, Marshall Goldsmith, when writing What Got You Here Won't Get You There, had focused on behaviors that get in the way of successful people. And um, I was using that book in some of the women's leadership workshops that I was doing, and I really became aware that some of the behaviors he focused in on uh, in that book were not necessarily um, uh, behaviors that were a problem for women and that there were behaviors for women or habits uh, that weren't in that book. So I had suggested to him that we partner uh, using that wonderful template of the idea that, you know, what gets you to a certain level won't get you to the next level, uh, that we use that, but uh, adapt it to women based on uh, the behaviors that, you know, I'd been observing over 30 years of working with women leaders. And um, some of the behaviors uh, really have to do with, you know, women often not being confident about claiming their achievements. Um, I've seen that for years, for decades, that um, women can be reluctant to claim their achievements and give credit away uh, to others, to team or collaborators, and not really take the responsibility um, for drawing uh, attention to what they have achieved or um, being comfortable really representing it, um, expecting so what others. Is the de- so, Sally, what's the don- downside of that? Because I think all of these things, and there are so many we can talk about that are in your book, but they sh- they resonate with me and they resonate with my colleagues and so many women I know who either do, as you say, have their own businesses or work for big companies. Okay, they have a reluctance. We have a reluctance to claim yes. our achievements. What does that do in the context of trying to get ahead? I mean, men don't seem to have that, I guess you're saying. That's not one of their issues. 
No, most men, and, you know, obviously there, there are some men who have some of these behaviors and there are some women who don't, but in general, women will have this. And what's, what's really interesting about every one of these behaviors, every one of these behaviors is rooted in a strength. Reluctance to claim your achievements is to some degree rooted in a, um, a modesty or a desire to give other credits. Uh, others credit, a generosity, but because in uh, most organizational cultures, people want a real clear sense of what their colleagues are doing and what they have the potential to do, and certainly leadership in most organizations is looking for what does somebody have the potential to do, so that if you're holding back and you're not claiming your achievements and you're expecting others to spontaneously notice and reward what you do, um, you're going to get lost in the shuffle, and um, it, it's going to make it more likely, I should say, it's going to make it more likely uh, that you'll get overlooked, and then you may start to feel bad, and then you may start to feel like, oh, this isn't really a place where I belong, or a place that values what I have to bring, and you can become discouraged and feel isolated, and that's not a good thing, and what we're really trying to do here is to get women to more confidently assert what they can contribute so that they can have more influence and help organizations become better places for everybody to work. Give us an example in a context of, say, a particular organization. You don't have to name it necessarily, but what do you say and what don't you say? Because as you're saying, there's a balance between accepting praise for what you've done or accepting yourself in terms of what you're accepting yourself with your achievements, but also giving others credit. So give us a a specific example of that, what to say and what not to say. Yeah, I have a wonderful example of it. Um, It is a technology company I worked with uh, a number of years ago out in the Bay Area. had a young woman engineer, and um, she had uh, gone away with her boss on her performance review, and he said um, his main... um, criticism of her, you know, negative aspect of the performance review is he said, you know, you do really, really good work here, but people don't know you and uh, you need to be more connected in the organization. And she went away from that meeting feeling absolutely terrible because she felt that actually, in fact, one of her strongest skills was as a connector in the organization and that she was someone who knew a lot of people and compared to a lot of her engineer colleagues, she was, she was actually very much out there giving people advice, helping resources to flow, very active as a connector. Uh, and she felt terrible and she felt like he doesn't really know who I am. He doesn't value me. Um, you know, again, maybe I don't belong here. And it took her a couple of weeks and she realized he doesn't know because I never told him. I never brought his attention to that. He doesn't monitor my emails. He doesn't stand in my doorway and see who comes in and out of my office. So even though she felt awkward about it, she decided that she, what she needed to do was to devise a plan to let him know uh, once a week, just send him a quick email to tell him, I've communicated with this person, I helped so-and-so, um, you know, uh, solve this problem by connecting them with another person. 
she said, I felt really awkward about doing it. I felt like he was going to think I was wasting his time or that I was making it all about me. And she said, in fact, what he came back to me and said afterwards, he said, this is valuable information. This is information I need because this shows me how my unit is connected in the organization as a whole. So she had been reluctant to claim what she was doing. She had been expecting her boss to spontaneously notice what she was doing. And once she realized that it was her responsibility to bring attention to that and to define herself uh, as someone who was really good at what she was really good at, uh, she, uh, the nature of her career really began to change because she, she, she got so much support um, from her boss and his colleagues who identified her as somebody who was both a talented engineer and a real resource in terms of bringing people together. Well, that's a good example of this, this woman, the engineer, female engineer. Uh, do you think, I mean, and I'm sure you obviously not only researched it but thought about it, like is this kind of behavior typical of women because it's in our DNA or because of the way we're raised? Or where does this come from? Not all of us are necessarily, as you said in the beginning, not all of us are reluctant to talk about our achievements. But generally speaking, where does it come from? I think it is more likely, I, I, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I, I can't speak to the DNA issue, but I think that, that women tend to be rewarded for being very good students. Uh, women tend to be rewarded for, you know, being good girls and showing up. And, uh, you know, when they're girls and, and boys are often rewarded for, you know, being the, you know, the, the showboater on the sports team. Um, you know, they're just those are, are the kinds of things that, that often happen. And, uh, uh, I think that that young men coming into an organization uh, get the message very early, uh, which is often comfortable for them, that, you know, it's they've got to be the ones to draw attention to what they do. Nobody else is going to to do that for them. And and women are, are often, you know, reluctant or uncomfortable with that behavior. But I, And I think that, in fact, organizations tend to often reward to a certain level women who they feel, you know, are, are really sort of clubbable or, or stay in their place or aren't necessarily, you know, trying to put themselves forward. You know, there is criticism of women. Oh, she's aggressive. She's ambitious. I mean, that keeps women down. But um, the more you internalize that message, the more that's going to handicap you or, or, or hold you back as you try to move to a higher level because um, boldness and confidence are definitely characteristics that are valued um, uh, as, as, you, as you reach higher levels. So that's one of the things we're really trying to emphasize here, but not just emphasize, but also give examples of women like the engineer I just talked about who've been able to overcome that and, and provide some practices for being able for beginning to address behaviors that do get in your way. Well, here's another behavior that you talk about that gets in our way as women, which involves overvaluing expertise. So, oh yeah, yeah, because and I, I think I, I think I tend to do that. I mean, I was looking at all of these and sort of putting myself in which ones really fit me, uh, and yeah, overvaluing expertise—that's a big one. Talk about that. First of all, what it is, and second of all, put that in a context with you know an example. 
Yeah, certainly. Overvaluing expertise is focusing all your attention on mastering the details of what your present job is, doing a great job, and expecting that that will lead you to be promoted. And the problem with that is often, first of all, focusing on expertise can lead you to, for example, I will hear a woman often say, I'm in a new job, I'm going to keep my head down, I am going to try to learn this subject matter and become really good at my job, and then I can lift my head up, then I can start building connections, um, then I can build my network. And, uh, you know, a guy will come into a job and his first question will be, who do I need to know around here to make sure this job is a success? So what does the woman end up uh, with? She ends up with a lot more work to begin with. She ends up with less visibility um, for the work that she does. She ends up with uh, a lot less support. Um, so because she's really focused in a kind of one-pointed way on being expert. And, you know, again, often this will happen because, you know, I, I, I worked with a woman a couple years ago and she had definitely had this problem. She'd been an architect. And I said, you know, where do you think this comes from, this idea that you have got to be the absolute, you, you can't even let anybody see your work unless you have completed it. You, you're, not, you're not comfortable sharing your work in a draft form. And she said, of course it comes because, you know the, the the men I've worked with have been so eager to to criticize my drafts, and it's been very painful for me to experience that. So I tend to hold on to it until I'm really satisfied with it. Um, and 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 she said, and I think that gets in my way because it's less collaborative than the process uh, of of a number of my colleagues. One other thing that overvaluing expertise does, and there are a number of behaviors. Um, that also do this is it tends to keep you stuck because it makes you invaluable um, in your present job. Uh, so uh, you, you you know you I've got some examples in there where where um, leadership was uh, reluctant to move women on because they had achieved such expertise in the job that they were in that they felt like well I can't we can't afford to lose her. It all kind of, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, does it all go back to like, we have to be good girls and we have to do the right thing? I mean, that's sort of a general umbrella to many of these examples that you're giving. Like, unless we do it right, unless we are the yes. the good girl, then we might, then don't do then you know, then we don't want to, we don't, then we can't, uh, I guess, uh, expect to, particularly in these situations, like you say, we can't show our drafts, we can't. Uh, we can't be fluid and flexible either because we have to do everything perfectly. I think that that, that is, you know, that, that there's real truth in that. In fact, as I've, I've worked with these behaviors more and more, what I see is that what we call behavior uh, number seven here, uh, which is seeking perfection, is really a foundational uh, Issue and that that desire to be the perfect person to do your work perfectly um, is something that often inhibits women from um, building the connection, or as you say, the kind of fluidity that really gets um, you know helps build a very effective and impactful. Uh, career because when you're seeking perfection, when you're caught in that perfection trap, you have a, a you have a fear of mistakes. 
Um, and, and, and again, the culture in many organizations encourages this. Um, I was working with a coach recently who had done a lot of psychometric surveys of, of men and women in organizations, and what he found was that women tended to be rewarded for precision and correctness, um, and men tended to be rewarded for boldness and risk-taking and vision. And guess what qualities are valued more in senior positions? Boldness, vision, and risk-taking. But women are rewarded for precision and correctness in organizations uh, in the same way that they're rewarded for precision and correctness in school and yeah, by getting being straight good A's girls. The, so, yeah. you know, it's... it's, it's um, it's it's very deep in our culture, um, but it does you know especially when you when you feel like you have to be perfect in everything you do it it results in a lot of stress. Um, it can make it very difficult to delegate um, because you feel everything has to be perfect. So how can you trust other people to do it? Uh, it makes it tough to take risks, and um, and it can make you know when you when you're hard on yourself. You can be harder on others, and that's that's um, you know that's not a great not a great thing. So, in your quest to be perfect, uh, there are lots of problems there, and I, I think that that's foundational. And my my co-author Marshall Goldsmith, who's you know ranked the world's number one leadership uh, executive coach, said, "Whenever I work with women." Whenever I work with women, no matter what exalted level they're at, the first thing I have to tell them is don't be so hard on yourself. Um, So that's a big message in this book. That is a big message in the book. And uh, one of the things sort of tying, well, what ties into it is another one of these uh, behaviors that we do as women, which are not... Uh, helpful to us in terms of achieving success is ruminating, ruminating. Oh, yeah. uh, so many women ruminate. <laughs> That's yes. why I keep saying it. We just ruminate. Why do we do this? And it really is detrimental. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. yeah, we've got great research on that. You know, there's been real research that done that does show that women tend to ruminate more than men going over and over. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Uh, why am I such a jerk? Um, you know, reliving mistakes and feeling as if by reliving mistakes uh, that that we'll be able to avoid them in the past, but really it can it can drag us down. And so we've got things in the book, How Women Rise, for uh, looking at how to deal with rumination. And you know, Catherine, when you think about it, rumination really does. Is, a, is another one of those consequences of trying to be perfect because you know, you're, you're going to go over your mistakes over and over them um, if you're trying to be perfect because you, you can't let them go. Yeah, I think all of these really, as I maybe I said that before, but it kind of go back to that trying to be perfect, trying to do the right thing or thinking that you're doing the right thing. I mean, here's another one you talk about, letting your radar distract you. We get... Uh, so caught up in what others are thinking or what we think they're thinking, and they may not even be thinking it, that we kind of lose sight of what matters most in the situation, in the work situation. 
That's exactly true. That radar distraction is, is, is a big one, and a lot of women identify with it when I'm talking with them about the book, How Women Rise. But, you know, it's interesting, that concept about radar was really something that was rooted in a book that I did before this called The Female Vision, Women's Real Power at Work. Um, and when we looked at, you know, what, 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 uh, what we found in, in doing that book and doing the research for it, uh, we're trying to look at why women were not seen as visionaries as much by organizational leaders, which is, is actually true and was uh, a big result of a massive study that was done at INSEAD over in Europe, but it was a global study that whereas women were, were valued for their communication skill, their negotiation skill, and their ability to build strong relationships, often by senior leadership, meant women were not seen as visionaries. And I thought, well, why is that? Uh, it certainly doesn't resonate with, with what I know about women. And what we found is, you know, vision is really when you think about what is your vision, it's three things, what you notice, what you value about what you notice, and how you tell a story or connect the dots about what you notice. But it's rooted in notice. And neuroscientists actually find that women and men tend to notice differently. Women's brains fire in lots of different regions when they're noticing. So they're noticing a lot of different things at once. So their notice is operating like a radar, which is the word we use here, um, whereas men tend to have a more laser-like notice, focusing in on one thing in sequence at a time. And radar is, when you think about it, and this exemplifies what I'm talking about, that you know, each uh, potential weakness is also a strength. Radar is a fantastic quality for leaders to have, especially in an environment characterized by constant change. Um, it, you know, you really get to sort of see around the corners and you notice a lot. But it can be very destabilizing for women because you're standing up trying to give a talk to people and you're noticing everybody's reaction. Oh, he doesn't seem engaged. Am I boring him? Um, why is she fidgeting and looking at her phone? You know, so you can, you can overread a situation and then take that information in and then end up feeling bad even though you've done a very good job. Um, so, you know, disciplining your radar rather than, than letting it run away with you um, is a great way to reap the benefits from it without, you know, pay, also paying, paying the price of that distracted notice. So you're talking about, like, so we, we're able to sort of get all this information. Uh, we're not just focusing on one thing, but it's like what we do with that information. Okay, we have all this information. We're very aware, maybe more aware than men are of what's going on in the room in, in a particular situation, a work situation. But now what do you do with it? You don't want to let yeah. it get you, okay, not distracted. Exactly. But you, you don't yeah. want to let it destabilize you. You want to be able to use it to take the temperature. You're, you're, you're heading up an effort and you notice in the back of the room that one of the people, you know, on your team who's going to be intrinsic to this effort looks, um, extremely disturbed or upset or distracted or he's not paying attention. That's important information because your team may need that information. So discipline your radar, go with that, address that issue, you know, go up to him, Dan. You know, is something going on with you? I I noticed that you seemed somewhat distracted there. Is there something I can do um, to help here? As opposed to, you know, 
oh, what's wrong with Dan? Maybe he doesn't like me. You know, maybe I'm boring Dan. You know, it, 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 that discipline is, is, is really helpful because it's valuable information. Women's radar takes in a lot. You know, that's the basis of this whole idea of women's intuition. Um, the, the, you know, it's a very, very important quality to be able to have that radar. But, um, but you, you don't want to let the shadow side of it, which can be, you know, getting distracted and worrying about what people are thinking. You don't want to let that uh, come up to bite you. Well, let's, we, we only have a few minutes left, so let's take another one. There are a lot more in the book <laughs> of these behaviors and also examples, but we want people to go out and buy the book. Uh, minimizing. The book what is being that? How Women Rise. I realize I'm not mentioning the title. Yeah, enough. you should mention <laughs> it, and we'll mention it again, I'll, you know, and the name of the book and also website we can go to. We can buy the book, right. I assume, Amazon. Uh, bookstores everywhere, but and also a website we can go to to learn more about the book and about you. So let's take this one, this last one, minimizing. What does that yeah. mean? Yeah. Minimizing means using words or body language to try to send a message that that you're not taking up too much space. So for example, uh, prefacing what you say of, um, you know, I just have one thing to add. I'll only take one minute of your time. Uh, trying to, in advance, telegraph that you're diminishing the importance of what you're saying. Apologizing, which is an issue for a lot of women, um, falls into this trap. You're minimizing your importance. Um, women often do this also physically by their body language, trying to make themselves smaller, not to take up space. I've noticed often, you know, when someone comes into a crowded room, all the women will kind of shrink into their chairs and put their purses under the chair as if to say there's plenty of room here for you. And the guys will remain sprawled out all over the place. Now, I'm not not recommending that women should sprawl, but just Think, you know, in terms of being able to, to hold your space and make sure that your body language says to people, I'm stepping up here, I deserve to be here, I am whole, I am complete, I am worthy of being here, as opposed to looking like uh, you're, you're trying to shrink yourself, and particularly um, with the language you use. Again, you know, we, we talk about these as behaviors, but they're often habits as well, uh, and the habit of apologizing. And it was actually apologizing that got me started thinking about uh, doing this book with Marshall because one of the behaviors that he had seen getting in the way of the successful men, mostly men that he worked with, was a refusal to apologize. And I thought, well, boy, that doesn't resonate with women who'll apologize for opening a door. Um, so it was one of the things that got me started thinking about what became this book. Um, so, you know, you don't do yourself a favor by minimizing. You don't really give other people more space by trying to shrink yourself. So in terms of your voice, your speech mannerisms, how you present yourself, it's really, really important if you're aspiring to leadership to, um, to, to hold your space verbally and physically. 
Well, this is such an important book for women, and uh, I thank you for being on the show and talking about it, but also now we want women to go out and, and get the book and really comb through it, because it's just a lot of really important, uh, a lot of important stuff in this book, How Women Rise, Sally Hegelson, and it's Break the 12 Habits Holding You Back from Your Next Raise, Promotion, or Job. So, Sally, website we can go to uh, to get more information about the book about you. Uh, website, there's a How Women Rise website from our publisher that'll put you through to all kinds of, uh, give you a lot of information, a lot of, in, of the endorsements, and also my own website, Sally at sallyhelgeson.com, uh, and my uh, co-author's website, um, Marshall Goldsmith Library. Um, there are lots of resources out there. Uh, I, I, we both intend this book to help women to become more successful because that's what's going to begin changing cultures in organizations to make them more comfortable and welcoming uh, places for, for, for everyone. So we're very committed to that, and, um, um, and, and those are ways you can find out more information, more resources, and, of course, uh, we'd love everybody to order the book, and not just women. There's a lot of information in yeah, here. Men have to read the book, too. For men. Yes. Yeah, who who uh, who work with or for women? Exactly. Great. Thanks so much. Um, great, as I say, great having you on the show today. And thank you so much, you. Catherine. Yeah. Wonderful to I'm be Ka- here. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. 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 News.
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is clinical psychologist Kate Lund, author of Bounce, Help Your Child Build Resilience and Thrive in School, Sports, and Life. Recent school shootings have raised significant concerns across the country about the safety of our children as they go off to school each day. The question of how to prevent such tragedies in the future is an important one with no clear answers. Just as important is how we answer our children's questions about their safety at school. Dr. Lung shares tips for helping children to cope with the events that happen around them and feel as secure as possible in an uncertain world. She has specialized training in medical psychology from Harvard Medical School affiliates, Shriners Hospital for Children, Mass General Hospital, and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, uh, great to have you on the show again. You've been on the show before, and we've discussed your book. But now today, specifically, we're going to talk about bouncing back, really, resiliency in children who have been exposed to the school violence, uh, and most recently in in Florida, um, and talk about the tips for parents and teachers uh, to, uh, you know, how how to handle exact these kinds of situations, because we are talking about building resi- resilience in these situations, not quite sure how to do it. So, um, and you have very specific kinds of tips uh, for helping children to cope with these events. So, uh, we should start with what are some, obviously, what are some of the things that we need to be aware of and that we need to do um, because our children are going to school every day and some are terrified. Uh, you know, I, I'm reading each day uh, that not just teachers and uh, administrators, but the kids themselves now are actually afraid to go to school because they're afraid they're going to get killed or shot. Uh, so what do we do? Right. It's a really, really difficult and really real situation. And, um, you know, one of the first things we want to do, Catherine, is really make sure that we're, you know, engaged in an open dialogue with our kids, um, sharing information uh, honestly, but yet in a developmentally appropriate way. Um, We want to really let our kids lead with the questions that they have about what's going on in and around our schools and how that could potentially impact them. Um, Important, very, very important to acknowledge the reality of the events, but just as important to do it in an age-appropriate way, because if we're jumping too much information on kids who aren't quite yet developmentally able to process that information, it might be overwhelming and could shut them down. Well, let's give examples. Let's say we'll talk about elementary school, middle school, and high school, because those are kind of the categories, I guess, that kids fit into when they go to school. So if we're talking to elementary school kids, what do we say? Because I think parents tend to want to make their kids feel good. You're going to be okay. It will be okay. Nothing is going to happen to you, which isn't really being honest because you don't know. So what is the balance? Let's take a nine-year-old, prepubescent. 
Right. So we really want to strike that balance. So we want to acknowledge the reality that, yes, bad things, you know, can happen at school, and they have, because these nine-year-olds have probably, you know, seen the news or heard their parents talking or something along those lines. So they know the reality of what could happen. But you really want to get specific in sort of a concrete way with these kids, um, kind of pointing out some of the things that, and of course, you have to know what the, the schools are doing, what their particular school is doing to ensure safety. But, you know, um, kind of talk about the safety plan that the school has in place in a developmentally appropriate sort of concrete way. Um, but you also don't want to spend too much time drawing attention to it all either um, for a child that young. You don't really want to get into the deeper processing mode until the child is in sort of high school and beyond, maybe middle school. Well, is the parent themselves supposed to bring this up? Let's say your child doesn't ask you any questions, but they are going to school and all schools do, it seems to me now, are doing something. They do different kinds of things in terms of of lockdowns and, and ways to respond if there's a shooter in the school. But is it important? It's sort of like sex education. Do you bring it up? Like, do you t- if the child themselves doesn't ask, or they don't ask a question? I mean, is it should the parent be responsible for doing that? Right. Well, the parent really wants to have a sense of what's going on in the school from this perspective. What is the school doing around, you know, lockdown drills, earthquake drills, that sort of thing, um, to have a sense of what's happening. But beyond that, um, really uh, letting sort of the information that you share um, be predicated or, or, or led by your child's questions um, is, is the way to go. Because if the child isn't necessarily coming forth with the questions, if they aren't showing any overt signs of anxiety, um, stress-related, you know, maybe things are okay. And really just keeping a close eye on it, but really letting your information be led by your child's questions is the way to go. Should you be asking uh, on a I I was going to say not a daily basis by any means, but should you be in contact with the teacher or the school counselor just to to sort of get a feel for or to ask them how do you, you know, do they uh, are aware that your child is having any issues or may have it, you know, should you, is that something that you should sort of try and connect to as a parent or no, just let it go? Well, possibly. You know, if you sense that there's something going on that's not being articulated, that's always a good idea to be in touch with, you know, the school counselor or the school personnel around what they might be noticing in your child that could be different um, and out of the ordinary. We're talking about the elementary school child here. Um, absolutely. But really beyond that, you want to you have a pretty good sense of... Um, how schools are managing the issue within school. You know, uh, what kinds of drills are they doing? What are the teachers saying? Just so that you have a sense of what kind of information is being conveyed to your child, what they're being exposed to on that level, on the safety planning level uh, each day. Because that can help you um, sort of have a better sense of, you know, some of the things that you might be seeing at home that are a little bit different. And if you are seeing things at home that are different, like more anxiety, 
more indications that the child might be um, shut down around something, worrying about something but not articulating it, that's a point where you need to dig a little deeper and find a way in. So parents have to really be much more aware, I I, I guess was what you're saying today, and very specific in terms of the knowledge they have and what the school is doing and how they're reacting to these school shootings so that they have they have the facts when they're talking to their children. Yeah, that's really important. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, like strong engagement by the parents on all levels is very, very important. So you're trying to... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. We, I just wanted to say, you know, we want to, you know, on, on many levels, we, we do want to reassure our children they're safe, but we don't want to overpromise. So that's that balance of, you know, what's being done um, to ensure safety, but the realities that, you know, bad things can happen. Um, and if that's the case, um, you know, you can really, depending on the age level, and I'm talking elementary again here, really kind of focus on those concrete measures that are being taken to um, ensure safety. But again, too much focus in a child who's too young can really um, shut them down. So the idea is really engagement, open, honest discussion um, with our child, our children, in developmentally appropriate ways, that's the most essential thing. And that will help them to be emotionally prepared. And also, I think, as like in, I guess in anything that you discuss with your child, uh, if they feel that you've been telling them the truth, um, then they will come to you when they aren't, when they are feeling bad or when they are scared or when another, because I think in particularly in this kind of a situation, other kids are telling them things too. I mean, maybe your child isn't necessarily concerned, but then their friends start talking and bringing up issues that may or may not be true uh, related to the potential for a school shooting. And so you want your child to be able to come home and ask you about it and trust you that you're going to, yeah. Tell the truth. Absolutely. And that's essential. And, you know, that really uh, spans across the issues that we have um, coming up with our children. And so it starts with the idea of engagement. And if a child feels that we as parents are authentically engaged and listening to what they've got to say, listening to their questions and responding in an appropriate way, in an honest way, um, yeah, that's, that's extremely important. You talk about helping children build a strong social-emotional foundation. What is that social-emotional foundation? What does that mean? Right. So social-emotional foundation um, really is uh, sort of, the cornerstone of a child's ability to process and cope with difficult situations. And it's really, you know, uh, encompassing a lot of things. Um, you know, really the ability to tolerate frustration, manage emotion, um, navigate friendships and social pressures. And within that, the idea of accepting individual differences, um, you know, really kind of embracing those differences with curiosity and empathy as opposed to ridicule and put down. And that really helps kids who are feeling um, a little bit shaky, a little bit um, uncertain, um, connect with others. Um, The other important piece of this is the idea of um, self-awareness. 
the ability to understand themselves and their needs, um, kind of, what is stressing me out in this situation? What am I really afraid of? Um, and that can be identified in this open, engaged dialogue with parents, with a trusted teacher, with a school counselor, that sort of thing. And that kind of awareness adds to a child's ability to, you know, really just manage, cope with uh, stressful and uncertain events um, in, whatever, in whatever form they come in, at school or, or otherwise. And also, don't you think these children have grown up in a... <clears throat> Uh, in a society, I mean, these kids were born, you know, terrorism has been an issue, not necessarily the school shootings, but even before uh, we, you know, they they grew up after 9-11 and or were born after 9-11. So they kind of have that in their psyche, you know, say, do if you see something, say something. I mean, that sort of, I think, is also in their psyche, even if they don't define it or talk about it. So they're sort of, this isn't something that's, this the school shootings, unfortunately, I haven't come out of the blue. It's kind of in the context of our whole society, this violence, and they see it on TV, even if you don't allow them to see everything on TV or, or, uh, but don't you think, so it's not maybe as jarring it maybe as it would have been 20 years ago. Very possible, you know, cause there is this sort of overlay, right. Of all of the, um, hard things, the, the terrorism, the, the issues that our kids are facing these days that weren't, um, you know, part of the mix. 20, 30 years ago, for sure. Um, I think the thing that's different here in terms of the, the school violence is it's inside the, the inner circle, the inner bubble. Um, so it brings it that much closer. But it's true, sort of the idea of what's looming there on the outside um, might position our kids um, in a different way than kids would have been positioned 20, 30 years ago to really notice things that are out of line or unusual, um, step up and say something if they see something that's scaring them or seems out of the ordinary. And that's a big piece as well, um, that the self-awareness, um, you know, allows kids to come forward when they see something that's out of the ordinary. Um, it allows them to have the, the confidence, the sense of self to say, hey, this doesn't seem right. Can you check that out for me? You know, a trusted teacher a parent, um, you know, even a friend. Uh, these are, are very important pieces of the um, social-emotional foundation, for sure. Well, we're asking our kids to be emotionally savvy, I guess. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and that, I mean, that's critical today. Uh, one of the things um, also that you mentioned in the book is to foster optimism. We talk about that in the context of the school shootings. We've sort of touched mm-hmm. on it, but not fear. How to be optimistic mystic about all of this uh, and not terrorize or terrify your kids. Um, how do they do that? How do they, I mean, I know the high school kids, which is, a, we haven't really, we've been talking about younger students, but high school kids, I think being optimistic is that if you've taken a stance, they're doing something about it. They're reacting, they're acting, they're uh, taking positive measures to help prevent school shootings from happening again. Elementary school kids are not in that kind of a position. But um, so that fosters optimism, I think, uh, because you are, you're taking action, you're doing something. Absolutely. Yes. And so this idea 
of fostering optimism um, rather than fear is, is essential. And we're seeing that, yes, in a lot of these high school students um, out there who are taking a stand. And so with the younger children, you know, we want to be also sort of finding ways to foster this optimism, not by minimizing the reality, you know, that bad things do happen, um, but helping them at the same time, so acknowledging the reality that bad things do happen, and then at the same time, helping them to cultivate sort of gratitude um, in their days, each and every day, um, help them to really find ways to point out the positive things that are happening around them. Um, and in this way, we can really help them to begin to or continue cultivating a sense of true optimism. Um, and that gives them sort of more of a sense of control over their outcome. Um, and it also uh, encourages them to take greater personal responsibility and ownership of their behavior. So if a kid is really feeling, you know, down and out and everything is negative and everything is bad around them, and then there's an overlay of, you know, an episode of school violence near them or around them or in their school, even worse, um, they're going to be much um, less able to cope with those realities. But if a child is sort of, um, you know, coming out of their day, coming out of their school day, able to point out the good things that happened, point out their successes, not negating that challenges also occurred, but really going to those positive things first, um, they're going to be much more well-positioned to cope when something else, you know, happens when there's an episode of school violence that they hear about or they witness or, you know, again, even worse, happens right there in their school. Um, So it's a really, really important uh, coping tool. Is there anything that elementary school kids or middle school kids can do to be proactive, like high school kids are doing, as I just mentioned? I mean, actual, as I say, very specific, concrete things that they can do. Right. Well, you know, in the elementary years, um, I think the the things that they can do uh, in the classroom really relate more to building these skills um, than they do to, um, you know, overtly going out and taking a stand or, or um, you know, uh, that sort of thing around the school violence issue. Because, again, we don't want to be bogging them down too much in the midst of it because they're not yet at the point where they can really fully process the information and the risk of them getting overwhelmed and and shut down um, is too great. So really the most important thing um, that we can be doing with with our younger students is helping them in the classroom um, and at home to develop these social-emotional skills, to develop, um, you know, sort of an overarching sense of optimism, um, to help them find ways to build courage um, as they go through their daily lives. Um, that's, that's the most important thing that, that we can do right now with the younger kids. Well, in your experience as a psychologist, are there any schools, schools, uh, we've been talking sort of primarily primarily about what parents can do are there schools that are doing and that are really doing what helping I guess and and 
to do what you're talking about specifically that are helping children to do all of the, you know, fostering optimism, building courage, doing all these kinds of things that are necessary for the kids in obviously in conjunction with the parents, but in the family. Um, are, are there any particular schools that you know of who have programs that are doing things like, you know, as I just mentioned? Yeah. So I do know of certain schools out there, you know, that, that have various um, social-emotional development um, sort of curriculums in place. There's so many. There are too many to name um, of these curriculums, um, for example. But th- there are some schools out there. I feel like it needs to be more of a universal um, thing, but sometimes the uh, resources and the time and, you know, um, folks get a little bit worried about taking away from the curriculum, but really this, I believe, um, and it's been proven to me in what I've seen clinically time and time again, that this social-emotional development is really the cornerstone of um, curriculum, uh, in essence, particularly in the younger years. Um, but that's a long way of answering your short question. There are schools out there who are, who are bringing this stuff in, for sure. Yeah, because I would think that I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, I don't know if you had to do this, but we used to have to hide under the table because there was going to be a nuclear holocaust. And if we had these drills of hiding under the desk, actually, and that would protect us from uh, getting uh, being radiated. I mean, we used to do this in uh, elementary school. I don't know if you are did that at all, or but that was like something that, you know, we had no idea what we were doing and why we were doing it, is what I'm saying. Uh, we weren't particularly, uh, yeah, <laughs> which was right. the opposite, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is the yeah, opposite. Yeah, no, of- I, I, I didn't actually do that, but I mean, I know that, um, you know, where we live, uh, my kids are at a school where they do uh, earthquake drills um, on a regular basis, and, you know, again, the teachers are presenting information about those drills in a developmentally appropriate way. So the really young elementary kids, um, you know, they just do the drill and it's almost like a game. But as the kids get, you know, a little bit older, um, third, second, third, fourth grade, you know, they start to have questions. They start to wonder, well, why are we doing this? Why are we sitting under a table? You know, what's, what's this about? Um, And the teacher then, you know, presents information in a developmentally appropriate way around the possibility of an earthquake, that sort of thing. And there have recently been um, similar drills around lockdown, you know, at my kids' school, and same thing. Um, you know, the, the middle schoolers processed it in a much different way than the elementary school, school kids did, um, you know, and the information that was presented about why they were doing these drills was prevented, presented in a different way, um, really concrete, really to the point for the younger kids, and the older kids were given, you know, uh, defined time to process their feelings, think about what this was really all about, that type of thing. So, you know, we see differences across the spectrum. Uh, but those are the drills sort of around, okay, if these events happen. And the social-emotional foundation is a little bit broader, um, thinking about helping kids to develop, you know, all the related skills that we were mentioning earlier. So in other words, we have to, we only have about a minute left. We have a minute left. So age appropriate. We have to keep that in mind. But um, yeah, 
a great, yeah, interesting conversation we had today. I want to mention your book again, Bounce, Help Your Child Build Resilience and Thrive in School, Sports, and Life, which is what we've been talking about. Uh, you can buy your book, uh, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Um, Kate, give us a website we can go to get to get more information about you and, and topics that you of interest that you're talking about and also about your book. Sure, absolutely. So that would be uh, www.pugetsoundsportspsychology.com. And uh, there's information about the book and my work on that website. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 